We are continuing in our John series and specifically uh, we're looking at cries from the cross and last week Brendo looked at the cry, I am thirsty and this week I am looking at the cry that Jesus made on the cross, it is finished and I wanted to before we dive into it, plug a book by Erwin Lutzer, Christina might correct the pronunciation, I don't know but um, so that's that book there and I've lent heavily on that book. It's been a really helpful book for me in preparing. And so I would encourage you um, to, if you'd like to read more or just even just to spend more time at the foot of the cross, this is an excellent book. Um, just exploring Calvary and, and all that Christ has achieved for us in the cross. So that book there is up the back in our bookshop along with many other great books. So spend away. John 19, 28 to 30 we're going to look at. John 19. I'm going to read verse 28 to 30. All right. After this... Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfil the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're a good God. This morning, would you be good and kind and gracious that as we explore this cry from the cross, that you would grant us the gift and the miracle of illumination. Would you grant us eyes to see and behold Christ Jesus as Lord. Would you help me in this task now? Would you help us all in this task now? Amen. I want you, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you're, let's say, standing at a bus stop and I walk up to you and I say the phrase, it is finished. And you might understand the phrase, but you perhaps need a broader context to understand the meaning of what I'm saying, right? Like if I just walked up to you and I said, it is finished, you'd be like, <laughs> what's finished? What are you talking about? There's not much meaning. You understand the phrase, but you need a broader context. And perhaps you could, could, um, you could come up with many true stories that would explain me doing that to you at the, at the bus stop. Perhaps I'm your gardener and you have a garden like me where there is just so many leaves that fall on, fall and fall and fall. So autumn comes and leaves fall and fall and it's a never-ending task of raking up the leaves. It just goes on and on and it's a huge task and you know you rake up a big pile you fill your green bin and then the next day 
it, the, the grass is just covered in leaves again and the task seems to be going on and on and on. And to be able to then, as the gardener of your garden, to realise that there is no leaves left to fall on the ground, that the grass is completely visible, every leaf has been put into the green bin and the task is completely done, nothing else to do and I walk up to you and I say, it's finished. That would explain, that would give you a broader context of why I might say that. Or perhaps, perhaps maybe you're a professor and, uh, and I come up to you as a university student and I say, it is finished. And the broader context is that I've been writing an essay and this essay isn't just like, you know, perhaps what I used to do at school and just a half-hearted, just do what I can to get the word quota done, but it is like finished. You know what I mean? Nothing else can add to this essay because I've written it in such a way that it's perfect. You can't add to it. It's brilliant. It's, you know, this essay is brilliant. And so I can come up to you at my professor and say, it is finished. That might explain that story, that true story, if it were true, could explain me using that phrase, right? When Bianca and I were just away on holidays and we we decided while well, we had several long car trips to, we found an app that challenges or asks you riddles and you have to then type in the solution before you get the next riddle. And uh, we, we enjoyed this and it was a bit of a challenge for us and sometimes you get a riddle and you have to sort of search and seek and, and, and we would wrestle for sometimes a long time trying to work out the answer. And, uh, you know, trying to find that answer would be a task where we'd be like, oh, come on, and it'd be so satisfying when you found the solution, when you finally had the, the right solution and your search was over, complete, done, and there was no other option. We had found the right solution. Let me give you a riddle. Let me give you such a riddle if you like. The riddle is this, right? The one that we're looking for is uh, someone who is going to crush the serpent's head. Um, it is someone who's going to offer a sacrifice greater than the one that Abel offered. Uh, it is someone who... Yeah, put your hand up and answer the riddle. Do you know yet? Uh, someone who uh, is going to weather the storm of judgment greater than Noah's ark. Someone who is going to bring about the promises made to Abraham. Someone who is the only beloved son that is offered, just like Abraham offered Isaac, someone who is uh, able to protect us from the angel of death by their blood, like the Passover lamb, someone who is greater prophet than Moses, someone who is a king like David and Solomon forever, someone who is a priest like Aaron and Melchizedek forever. Someone who, as spoken about in Isaiah, is every king will bow their knee to him and yet he will be despised and rejected by men. This is someone who is going to be a suffering servant and yet the Messiah. What a riddle, hey? It's the riddle of the salvation of sin. Sin is like you and I. It's the true story of the world. It's the true story where God created this world and yet in, in Genesis 3 we see the true story unfold where we all rebel and reject God. But God promises and brings about greater and greater revelation of one who will come 
One who will come and bring about the salvation for sinners. And Jesus now, as we've just read, is then able to be on the cross and in reference to this broader context, say it, it, as in all that that we just shared, all of that riddle, this massive packed with meaning Old Testament of searching for the one who will bring about salvation of sinners, all the types, those who represent and embody the one to come, all the promises that are made of the one to come, this forever king, he has lived his life and now he's on the cross and he's able to say, it, all of it, it is finished. Now it would be a huge task to try and explore every type, every promise and all that the Old Testament says when Jesus says, it is finished. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to just break it down as we explore how the salvation of sinners is finally realised, completed, like the, the garden that is completely raked up, nothing, no leaves left, like the essay that is completely written and you cannot add to it, it is perfect. That Jesus is at that place with the riddle of salvation of sinners, he is at that place And I would say, it is finished. We're going to focus on three specific things and aspects that he says, it is finished. So the first one that we're going to look at will be the law. It is finished. The second thing that we'll look at when Jesus is on the cross and says, it is finished, is guilt. It is finished. And lastly, Satan's authority it is finished. That in these three things, Christ can stand on the cross and say, it is finished. Complete. Nothing else to be done. It is finished. So look with me. We're going to explore these three key things. The law, guilt and Satan's authority. And the first one that we're going to look at this morning is the law. The law, it is finished. So Christ was, came to earth to obey the law perfectly as our representative and to live his life in perfect obedience such that he can then at the end of his life on the cross say, it's finished, I obeyed the law perfectly as your representative. Let's explore this concept a little bit. We have laws, don't we? We have rules and laws. In our house we have rules Uh, for my kids. So some of the rules that we make, they're rules that are in essence are there to protect them, to assist them in enjoying each other and to keep them having fun. So we might have a rule like if you're going to ride your bike, you wear a helmet. Alright? And and we are strict on this rule. We enforce it. We want them to keep this rule for their good. Or we have lots of different rules that whether it's about their toys and sharing with each other or rules about their food and and, uh, how many lollies they, they eat. We have rules uh, that are there in essence to guide them and help them and keep them having fun. Well, God had laws. God gave us rules. And uh, when we look at the Bible, some people understand and, and, and when you read and look at the first five books, it's commonly known as the Pentateuch or it's also sometimes referred to as the law. And it's full of God making a re- revealing his will for people, for us. And his will, in essence, refers to how we are to interact in the vertical, in relation to God, 
and the horizontal in relation to others. God's will. And it might be easier for us, rather than trying to think five books, the first five books, to think Ten Commandments. Or maybe it's easier, it's still the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and strength and love others as you would love yourself, the vertical and the horizontal. God gives us his law and in essence it serves a purpose, right? It serves a purpose that we would understand how great and awesome he is as we worship him in the vertical and love others, his creation. But it also serves a purpose in highlighting how far short we fall. We fall, we fall, don't we? From Genesis 3 onwards, rather than being vertically worshipping God and horizontally loving others, all of us have actually gone downward and inward, which has actually made obedience to the law really hard because rather than love you, I'm actually more concerned about myself. And rather than worship God, I, I put other things on the throne and worship them. Silly things like surfing or my own pride or whatever it be that I want to put on the throne at a certain time it becomes more important than God. And I try and I try to obey, obey God's law. And no doubt you do too. But I fall short. I fall so far short. Many of us in Australia, though, we adopt this kind of idea that it's, you know, she'll be right and I'll be good enough. And we kind of have this mindset that we'll be able to present to God a life that was good enough. Do you know what I mean? Like, close enough, right? And have you ever pondered what it would be that you would kind of present as your evidence? I found my old school reports the other day and um, <laughs> Matt Bingham was in, in my classes in year seven, the ones that I found, and and some of the, and he can vouch for you if you want to talk to him afterwards. I was good, but um, some of these reports kind of remind me that I probably wasn't always good enough. But um, some of them, some of these comments, you know, I, uh, I tried hard. Maybe I could present that to God and go, look, tried hard, tried hard in learning uh, English, <laughs> lastly but not leastly. <laughs> What else would we present? Maybe I could show God, you know, my um, uh, receipts for how I've sponsored a child. You know, that's, that's helpful in the horizontal, right? I'm loving others. But ultimately, Romans makes it very clear that we fall short. And Galatians 3 makes it very clear that if you stumble in just one place, you actually have failed the law miserably and completely. It's like a boat is useless if it has one hole. Just one hole, it's going to sink. It just needs one hole to sink a boat. If you fall short just once, you stumble and fall completely from fulfilling the law. And my attempts, if I were to come and stand before a righteous and holy God and go, look, school report's not too bad. Once upon a time I helped someone cross the road, that's pretty good. I stopped to help another lady when they had an accident, that's pretty good, right? It's kind of like trying to buy a house with Monopoly money. It's just not effective and falls far short of what is really required. And so when it comes to obeying the law, you and I, we don't have what is necessary. We lack. And our attempts are pathetic monopoly money type kind of stuff. It falls way, 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 way short of the real thing. 
And so enter Jesus. Jesus lived a, a life where he obeyed perfectly in the horizontal. Can you imagine that? When people slander him, he didn't turn around and give them a what for. When, uh, when people are you know, in need, he's not too busy for them. He loves perfectly in the horizontal. And he does all of this in perfect relationship, in perfect worship, in the vertical. He perfectly fulfills the law. And he does it as our representative. Perfectly obeying God as our representative on our behalf. We were holidaying in Yamba and we caught up with some friends who are mad Queenslanders. They love Queensland and they, they made it pretty obvious that they were pretty enjoying the fact that they've won seven straight in the origin, if you like rugby league. And the whole time that we were talking rugby league, the conversation wasn't the Queensland team and the New South Wales team. It was a we and you conversation. We keep winning and you guys keep losing. And now, my friend Peter certainly is not in the Queensland team and I am certainly not playing for New South Wales. However, he certainly acknowledges that the Queensland team are his representatives and as such, it's a we for him. And I acknowledge that New South Wales are my representatives. As bad as they are, they still do represent me. And so it is a we for me. All right? And if they win, so when they won that first game, oh man, I, I was a part of that. Like I, It was a we and I was claiming that. We won, we won. They were our representatives. Christ, in that same sense, lived the perfect life as our representative for us, obeyed the law horizontally and vertically perfectly for you and I so that he can be on that cross and say, it is finished. The requirements of the law have been met on your behalf. You can add nothing. There is nothing else left to be done. You can't do anything to add because it's been completely done. It's like that essay that is written perfectly. You can't add to it. It's, it's perfect. It's like trying to get the rake out in the garden and rake the leaves, but there is nothing else to, to be raked up. It's complete. It is done. When Jesus said it is done, it is finished, he meant it. And so you and I in our obedience to the law, it is finished. He has done it perfectly on our behalf as our representative. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? That's amazing grace, guys, that he has done this for us. In Romans 6.14, Paul wrote, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And this was astounding to Paul. If anyone had kind of a big list of things that they could present to God, you know, as evidence. He wasn't presenting his year seven PDHPE school report. He kind of came before God and he was like, you know, I was, um, a, you know, part of the tribe of Benjamin. I was, um, I, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I did everything according to the law. I was good. He had this list of things that he, he thought, yeah, if there's anyone that can kind of come close to obeying and doing and living out the law, he thought he was pretty good. But ultimately, he, in Philippians 3, comes to the conclusion and says, you know what, all those good things, all my attempts, it was rubbish. It was like poo. It was, it's worth nothing. 
all right, less than monopoly money even, it is just nothing compared to having Christ Jesus and all that he has done for me. As my representative, he achieved everything. That where I could not go because I did not have what was required, Christ paves the way and says, enter with me. He's with me and he's and because I've got everything that's necessary, he's with me and he does too. Grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. So the law, it is finished. And we're under grace because of Jesus. Secondly, when Jesus is on that cross and he says, it is finished, he's also referring to our guilt He's also referring to our guilt. Now again, in our society, we have this understanding about laws. And if we break a law, we incur guilt that we believe can be paid for, paid off, if you like. So if you're, when I was a school teacher, if someone broke a rule and they were guilty, they incurred that guilt by then paying off for that guilt. Maybe it was a detention, maybe it was picking up rubbish, maybe it was a suspension or expulsion. But they incurred a guilt and they had to pay for it. In our society, maybe there are other laws that we break, authorities that we offend, and as we have incurred the guilt, we then pay for it. Maybe it's with a fine, maybe it's community service, maybe it's being isolated and put in prison. And so we have this understanding, this concept of guilt, and that guilt can be paid off, right? And God, as the great lawmaker, as the great rulemaker, as we said before, he set these rules out that we would see how far short we fall. And we all know we do. And so we all are guilty. We've all incurred a guilt. But it's not to just an authority of human nature, but it is the authority that we have incurred a guilt. And the Bible says that the wages of our sin, of our failure to meet what is required in the law, is death. Throughout the Old Testament, there was a, a sacrifice system that when a man or a woman sinned, when they broke the law of God, they would get an animal and they would in essence confess their sins upon the animal and then the animal would be sacrificed for them, would substitute in for them if you like. And they all understood though that it was an animal and so it was kind of funny for an animal. They knew that ultimately an animal substituting for a human was never going to be quite sufficient And so they were waiting for the ultimate substitute, the ultimate human who would substitute themselves for humanity. Someone who sins would be put upon, that they then would die as a substitute on behalf of humans who have sinned. They're looking for that. And then we we find Jesus standing and, and in John 19 saying, As he dies for sin, it is finished. Here, let me unpack this a little bit because it's interesting. Some of us don't like this thought that God punishes sin. Some of us don't like the thought that God could be angry at sin. We just want to ponder, no, no, God is a God of love. I want to put it to you that he he is both. He is both angry and wants to punish sin justly as it deserves to be punished, and yet, in his love, he takes that punishment upon himself for us, as he sent his son to stand in our place for us. 
Condemning the innocent and acquitting the guilty, the Lord detests them both, it says in Proverbs 17. Or 15. I'll double check that, Brendo. That. Anyway, freestyling right now. So, condemning the innocent and acquitting the guilty, the Lord detests them both. He will not let the guilty, you and I, go unpunished. We must pay for our guilt. And so the perfect solution is that he would become a man himself and take the guilt upon himself. That in that moment he can then exhaust his wrath, his wrath would be satisfied, that guilt would be paid for as it ought to be, but it would be paid for by himself. See, God is both an angry God for at our sin and yet a loving God by providing a perfect substitute for us. It's incredible, isn't it? That our guilt is paid for. And the actual word that Jesus says here, tetelstai, and its origin is teleo, which ultimately means, it was, well, it was actually a word that would be written on the bottom of a bill or a receipt when someone has completely paid off a debt, completely paid, they would write on the bottom, tetelstai. In other words, there's nothing left to be paid. And Jesus is standing on this cross and he says, tetelstai. It is finished. Nothing else to be paid. The guilt that you have incurred has been paid in full. Nothing else to be paid. Nothing else left owing. You are no longer guilty. Paul said there is now no condemnation, Romans 8.1. Isn't that incredible? I was reading during the week a, a story that I've heard before, you may have heard it before too, by a guy called... Ernest Gordon, and he wrote a book, uh, The Miracle of the River Kwai. And in it, he talks about these Scottish POWs, prisoners of war, who were in a jungle and doing labour for some Japanese soldiers. And these Japanese soldiers were treating them pretty poorly. And they lined up the prisoners and they did a count of their tools and found that the shovel was missing. And the, the, the soldier at the time is barking orders and yells at them and he says... Who has taken the soldier? Or who has taken the shovel? And, uh, and no one steps forward. And he is furious and he's like angry. He's going to dish out some anger. And so he barks at them and he says, I'm gonna, I'll kill you all unless you come forward and show me who has taken the shovel. So one man stepped forward. And the soldier put down his gun and he picked up a shovel and he beat him to death. And the prisoners then carried the bloodied body away as some other Japanese soldiers came out having done a recount and found that actually they'd miscalculated and the shovel was there. And, and in essence what we, we see in that story is a man who is completely innocent receiving the wrath and anger when he didn't deserve it to save others. He, an innocent man, died to save others. When Christ is on the cross and he says, it is finished, he's doing a similar act but far more amazing. Because in, in what Christ is doing, he's receiving the anger of, a, of God, his anger at sin. Not the anger of a soldier who's explosive and, and uh, unjust, but the just, right anger 
at sin. And he wasn't dying for people who were innocent. See, when, that, when the, other, the Scotsman stepped forward, the POW stepped forward, they were all innocent. But when Christ stepped forward, we are not. We are all guilty. We all have guilt on us and we all owe. And yet Christ, the innocent one, steps forward and exhausts the wrath of God in our place to pay for our guilt. The consuming fire of God's anger burned on him to rescue us. We've got a really cold house, and so, but we have a fireplace and so I've been burning a fair bit of wood at night. Now, when the fire goes out and it's burnt all the wood that is in there, all the material has been exhausted and there's nothing left to be burnt. If I then light a match and try and blow the fire into the fireplace and the fire might go there but it won't grab anything, there's nothing for it to burn and so it won't actually come alight again. Everything has been exhausted, there's no fuel left to burn And so you could almost safely stand in that place knowing that you're not going to get burnt anymore because there's no fuel for it. Christ received the wrath of God, received the punishment, paid in full for us so that we can stand with him knowing that the anger and the wrath of God that we deserve will never burn there. We can stand in full confidence he exhausted it all for us such that we can enter the the throne of of grace with confidence because of Christ dying as a sacrificial lamb, my sin placed upon him, your sin placed upon him, dying for us, receiving the anger of God upon himself, paying our debt in full. And I don't know what your worst sin is, It's probably the kind of thing that you don't want to say verbally. Maybe you've had some horrible thoughts. Maybe you've actually done things. But if you were to write on the ledger, abortion, paid in full by the blood of Jesus, murder, paid in full by the blood of Jesus, adultery, paid in full by the blood, lies, paid in full, All your sins and your worst of worst sins, when you stand in Jesus, are paid in full. To tell Stai, it is finished and paid for. What grace. What amazing grace that we hear when he says these beautiful words or word in Greek. It's finished. He dealt with it. So the law, it's finished. Our guilt, it is finished. And thirdly, the authority of Satan, it is finished. Christ sets us free and when he said it is finished, it is like a victory cry where he crushed Satan in victory for us. See, once upon a time there was a... an angel who decided to rebel against God in heaven. And and there's a great war in heaven. And this angel lost and was banished from heaven and took with him a third of the angels with him. And he went to earth and started to wage war there. And we first encounter him in Genesis where he comes as a serpent. We know him by many different names throughout the Bible, the accuser, the tempter, 
Satan, the devil. But here he's, he's called the serpent. And he deceives, he tempts Eve and Adam. He distorts God's words. And he lures them to, to defy God's word. And you see him come pop up throughout the, the Bible and we see how ultimately we do rebel against God, we do defy God and distort God's word and humanity in our sin rebel against God. Paul wrote of, of this, describing it in Colossians 1, that in essence because of our sin we alienate ourselves from God. We are in some ways blinded to God. We might have some sort of rational understanding that God exists, but we're blind to him and his glory and his, we prefer other things. It's kind of like I'm blind to the joy of knitting. All right? I, you can rationally argue with me about it, and there's some heads shaking, but I'm blind to it. I'd rather do other things. I find greater joy in other things. And, and we are blind to God. We are alienated from God and we find joy in other things. We prefer other things to God. Isn't that radical? The almighty, awesome God of whom there is nothing greater in our sin, we have preferenced things of lesser value. We prefer them. And Satan, in this situation, seeks to distort God's word further for us to lead us again to defy God's word, to tempt us again and again. And the scriptures talk about him being the prince of this world, of having dominion of darkness in this world. And if you look at the cross, and I believe Satan would have been looking at the cross thinking, ha ha, got him. As the son of God, he's nailed to a piece of wood and dying, it looks like the accuser, the tempter, is about to win. But here's what's happening. See, Christ was dying for those who have been alienated to make a way for them to be released, set free. Christ's death makes a way for our freedom. Christ's Death opens the eyes of, eyes of the blind to see how glorious Jesus, is, how glorious God is, to taste and see that He's more glorious than whatever else you previously preferred, and that in Christ's death, to tell Stai, the word in Greek, in English, it is finished, is a victory cry, the cry of a man perhaps who was just raked up all the leaves and there's none left. <laughs> it is finished. Far greater than that though is the realisation that it's a victory over Satan. That in dying to set captives free, Christ's death makes a way for true freedom for us. The scriptures were far better than I could ever say. Let me read for you Colossians two, thirteen to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or Colossians 1.13 
Paul wrote, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Or again in Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. Victory over Satan. The authority of Satan, it's finished. We are no longer blind to the glory of God, but we can now see how glorious he is. And the tempts and the taunts of Satan to define, distort God's word, we now are able to see what they are. And they're still there. Satan still walks with a limp. But ultimately, it's a case of a now, not yet, because we know one day it will be fully realised. And whilst there is a sense that we still wage war with the, with the tempter in this world, one day we too will be able to stand and say, because Christ said it first, it is finished. And we will look back on all the things that we have found tempting, knowing that we ought not to, knowing that we have battled and raged with whatever it is that you find tempting. One day you will be able to say, because Christ said it first, it is finished. And Christ has made a way for you to ultimately enjoy freedom once and for all in heaven. How good is that? Amazing grace, hey? To know that for certain you will one day be set completely free and able to enjoy the the freedom you have in all its fullness in Christ. It's finished. Here is the one, the son of Eve, who was crushed. The serpent. It is finished. Once you were alienated and captive in in, in a sinful world, now you have been set free. Once you were in the dominion of darkness and now you can know the light. Once you knew Satan and now you know God and turn to him. I was in a situation myself when I was a kid, in a horrible situation that alienated me, if you like. Uh, My grandparents took me to Goat Island, which is an island in Sydney Harbour. And... uh, not only is it an island, which is isolated in itself, but whilst I was on the island, I did what many kids seem to do and regularly need to go to the toilet. And uh, so I had to go to the toilet. Now, this was not just like a clean toilet. It was a, you know, your typical public toilet, right? And so perhaps already you can kind of conjure up the smells and, and the fact that people misuse public toilets. And for whatever reason, as a kid, I've turned and closed the front door and locked it. Um, or somehow locked it. Uh, and then I've then gone and, and used the toilet and then come out and I was not for the life of me able to do anything to get out of there. I was alienated from, from everyone else. I was in a horrible situation, not the kind of place that you would ever want to be and I could do nothing to get out of there. Stuck in this public toilet with all the, the joys or lack of joys of a public toilet and unable to do anything, hopeless situation, captive and unable to get out. Someone must have heard my cries for help because the maintenance guy suddenly appeared on the roof and was able to kind of create a hole in the tiles or somehow and lowered himself and came down from above and then was able to open the door for me to make a way for me to get out. And I word it deliberately because in some ways that's exactly what Christ does for us. We're in a hopeless, like, poo-smelling situation. It's horrible. And, and, and we're captives. We're alienated. We're cut off from God. 
and yet God sends down one from above to make a way for us to know true freedom, to set us free. And ultimately, we still are on our way to that freedom, if you like, but we know that it is open. The door is open and we are on our way. And one day we too will, will be able to say, as because Christ said it first, it is finished. The law, when he, stood, when he was on that cross, it is finished. Our guilt paid in full, it is finished. The authority of Satan, it is finished. What a powerful phrase when we truly understand the broader context, right? What a powerful phrase. We understand the sentence. We must continue to explore and understand the broader context and all that it means. Amazing grace wrapped up in a, in a word, tetelstai. So what does that mean for you and I? Maybe you're like me. Maybe we, uh, we try and smuggle into this gift of salvation our own good attempts, our own good works. And maybe it's whatever holy activity you are thinking of right now. Maybe it's whatever holy activity you prefer. Maybe it's a, a prayer walk or maybe it's um, church attendance or maybe you smuggle in the fact that you were baptised or maybe it's smuggling in the fact that you grew up in a Christian family. We try and smuggle in to the gospel our own holy activities as if they kind of assist the salvation that Christ won for us, as if they kind of are a bit of an insurance or assurance policy for us. We think that that... Yeah, Christ died for me, but just to be sure, I'll continue to practice my holy activities because that will really shore things up. But friends, we need to hear these words. Christ said, it is finished. I need to hear them. It is finished. And, and this idea that I need to add to it is kind of this idea that I don't really believe Jesus when he said it's finished. As if I kind of look at what Jesus did on the cross and go... It is finished, but not quite, not quite good enough, as if Christ didn't really live perfectly quite enough. I've got, uh, my daughter loves to draw, loves to draw, Talitha. And uh, I like drawing too, and so I, sometimes when she's sitting down drawing, I'll sit down with her and I'll draw a picture. And I like to draw, and I think, you know, some of my pictures aren't too bad. And I'll have finished a good picture. So the other day I drew a dog for her. And uh, it was a good picture of a dog. And I finished it. I didn't think you could do anything else to make it better, right? And then along comes Talitha and she decides that my picture wasn't finished and that she needed to kind of add to it. And really, what she was doing was scribbling. And (laughs) my work was kind of consequently ruined. She was, in essence, saying that what I had done wasn't enough. We do that to the death of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus. When we say, not good enough, you need my help. And really all we're doing is scribbling. (laughs) Lay it down. It's not about you and I and what we do because it's all about what he has done. And it is finished. When were you saved? 2,000 years ago. What do you have to do to be saved? Nothing. Because he did it all. 
Trust in him. Because it's finished. Maybe, like me again, you struggle, maybe we, we struggle with guilt. Some of us in this room are aware of some of the things we've done and, and we struggle with guilt and we kind of feel like we, we still have a debt owing to God as if we need to pay for it. And that hangs over our head, this awareness, this, this feeling of guilt. Again, I want, I, want you, I want us to look at the cross and hear the words to Telstai. It is paid in full. And to keep paying is just, well, not necessary. It's like if you paid off a house and then you just kept paying more to the bank, that would just be weird. It's not necessary. Jesus paid it all. Do you not believe him? And you feel guilty. Maybe you need to forgive yourself. Because God has forgiven you. Look to the cross. Look to the cross and, and hear his words and believe them. It's finished. He died for your sins that there would be no guilt on you anymore. He exhausted the wrath of God for you. Maybe some of us in this room, we are aware of this battle that goes on in this world and the ongoing wrestle and we are aware of the temptations that we face and struggle with. And maybe it's been a week where you've just been so aware. It's almost as if you're can sense the spiritual warfare that's going on. Almost as if you're aware that, man, I am unusually aware of that sin that's desirable right now. And you attempted to distort God's word to justify what you want. You attempted to defy God's word altogether. And you know that wrestle, you know that battle with sin. And it's hard, isn't it? To keep going on and on in the battle is hard. And sometimes in that you, still, you feel like you're all alone. And sometimes you feel in and of yourself in the battle with your sin as if you're defeated. And we, if that's you like me, we need to look to the cross and hear the victory cry that it is finished. And know the certain hope that we have because Christ has the victory. And to know that we are not alone, that we are not defeated. To know that you are completely loved by the Almighty God. Look at the cross and see the love that he has lavished and poured out for us. That he would send his son for you. You are so loved. And, and whilst there is a battle ongoing... You know that in Christ when he said it is finished, you can know for certain that one day you'll be free from the the temptations that you're facing. Won't that be beautiful? And you'll be able to enjoy God in all his glory, away from all the the sin that just tempts you and lures you. And Satan will be bound and, and judged once and for all. Because Christ stood on that cross and said, it is finished. The law, it is finished. 
guilt, it is finished. Satan's authority, it is finished. Words of grace, words of rich grace, jam-packed with so much meaning and significant for us as we go into our week. So let me pray for us in that. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were able to stand on that cross and you would live the perfect life and obey God perfectly to that point that you could say as our representative, it is finished, nothing left to be done. Thank you that at that point, all that we owed for the guilt that we have incurred was paid in full, it is finished. Thank you that in that we hear the victory cry over Satan, it is finished that we know once and for all we are not alienated from you. We are not cut off from you, but by the blood of Jesus there is a way made for us to approach you and enjoy you, enjoy your grace. And then ultimately once we will enjoy once and for all in heaven all that that is and all that that means and realise it in its fullness. Thank you for those beautiful words. It is finished. Amen.